Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, thanks for listening. It's Mike and Davina here, and welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. Today's episode is awesome. Aren't they all, though? Like, I feel like I say the same things in every intro because I'm always so pumped after I do these interviews with people. I always learn so much great stuff. And I think that everybody I talk to is just, they're all super helpful. They all share a ton of great knowledge. And I have so much fun with these. So I'm hoping you're enjoying these episodes. But today's episode's a really fun one, too. I'm interviewing Brian Moncars, which Brian is an awesome engineer out of the Toronto area who has worked with bands like Our Lady Peace, Monine, Circus Survive, The Tea Party, and a whole bunch of awesome, awesome bands. And he's got a really deep history in production, learning from guys like Bob Ezrin and David Bottrell. And we get into some of those stories later on in the episode. And he also shares some really cool stories about working with some of the bigger bands that he's worked with and giving some insight into their productions. So... I, I really enjoyed this episode. Brian's such a cool guy, and I was happy to have him on here. So, yeah, let's not waste any time. Let's just jump right into this episode. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So for people who might not know your history and how you got into mixing and engineering and producing, can you give us a little bit of that story? Yeah. I mean, I I guess I came up um, as a guitar player, um, writing songs, playing in bands, um, and then by the time I got to university, you know, I really started taking a liking to being in the studio. Um, I was always the guy in the band that, that requested to sit in on mixes. And, um, I just, I loved the process of being in the studio and it started to get to the point where <clears throat> I kind of enjoyed it more than even playing my instrument. And, uh, I knew that, it was something that I'd have to pursue. Um, I was fortunate that I, I went to Ryerson for radio and television arts in Toronto in the, in the early nineties. And although there wasn't like a huge musical component to the, to the course, we did have a few multi-track studios and I would sort of sneak in on the weekends and during the summers uh, with my professor's blessing and uh, would record bands uh, and just really fell in love with it all. So that that's kind of how I, I got my start in it. Um, yeah, just 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 being involved, you know, from from the musician's perspective, and then transitioning over, um, you know, to the other side of the glass and being the engineer and eventually producer and mixer. Awesome. And what instrument did you play? I played guitar. That's my primary instrument. I still, I mean, I still do, but time doesn't really allow me to practice as much as I'd like. <laughs> that is a downside to getting into this kind of stuff, right? Like you just, it takes you away from your playing, but you get your, you're coaching people through it, I guess. Right. Exactly. I get my musical fix. It's a, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> How do you think that, uh, your ability to play guitar has influenced the work that you do now? Um, I think, I mean, I, I, I think in, in terms of, um, you know, just understanding, um, the musicians that I'm working with and being able to, to talk to them, you know, from, from a music, a musician standpoint and not just, you know, the producer that's, that's kind of barking orders at them. Um, I think I can identify with them a little bit better. Um, and it also, I mean, I, 
you know, being in love with the guitar and, and playing, I mean, I, I started playing when I was in grade six. So, I mean, music has been a huge part of my life. Um, and that sort of, I mean, that, that, that's been a, it's been a huge influence on, on my career, on my life outside of the studio, on my life inside the studio. I mean, I just sort of live in, in live and breathe music. And I think that passion always comes across when I'm working, when I'm working with bands, they, um, they, they can see, you know, just how excited I get to sort of get my hands on their songs and, um, you know, whether it's producing, whether it's mixing, um, you know, I'm, I'm equally as excited and, and they, f- they feed off of that. So it's, it's really great. For sure. And so you had mentioned you were at Ryerson for studying radio stuff and then getting into the studios and recording bands. Like, how did you uh, learn about producing bands and, and the mixing process? Because that's got to be a little different from radio, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it's it's very different. I mean, I always I just in high school, I sort of envisioned that I would have a career in radio because I, I I did like an internship at Q107 and then stayed on after. And it's kind of where I learned a little bit of Pro Tools and 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 really got my feet wet of being in studios, although we were recording commercials. So it was very different. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, in terms of learning production, I think you're always learning. I mean, I, I would say that 18 or 19 years in now, I'm, I'm still learning. Um, I had... You know, having been in bands that recorded before with other producers, I sort of had an idea of what it meant to be a producer. And I, I through a lot of like trial and error, um, at first I sort of started out on my own, but then about four years into my career, I met Bob Ezrin, um, who was incredibly generous with his time with me, uh, and really took me under his wings and, and, and taught me a lot about production and mixing too. We spent an awful lot of time. Uh, well, he spent an awful lot of time critiquing my mixes for like several months. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I really learned what it meant to sort of focus and, and, uh, and, and use my ears and, and, uh, really like search for a sound and then commit that sound. Um, you know, through, through a mix or through a recording. Yeah. Well, having a guy like Bob Ezrin evaluating your mixes has to be <laughs> equally intimidating as educational, right? It was, it was a trip. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, I, I'm so fortunate. You know, I think those types of mentorship opportunities don't exist that much anymore. And I just sort of met him at the right time in my career where, where I had things going on, um, you know, I was working on a project for a, a, a band called the junction that were signed to universal at the time. And I sort of met him through that. And so he, uh, he really just really helped kind of get my career, um, or, or, or maybe push fast forward on my career a little bit and, and, and jumpstart things a little bit for me, which was, which was awesome. For sure. Yeah. I, I remember, um, I one of my early mentors was Jack Richardson, who he worked very closely oh, yeah. with with Bob. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I remember like the, the same sort of feeling as as maybe you experienced, like trying to show that show him my first mix and be like, hey, man, like you want to check this out? And like <laughs> and just like feeling like you're going to get shot down. But it, I, for me, it was a great experience and I learned a lot from him. And uh, I'm sure likewise with you, with Bob, like you probably learned tons. Oh, yeah, it was invaluable, but, but mostly it was just training my ears to hear how things 
should sound just in terms of, of, you know, the bigness, the richness, the, I mean, it's so, it is very subjective. You, you know, I'm sure there there's, you know, there's mixes that I hear that I think could be improved and there's mixes that, that, um, you, you know, that I love that maybe other people aren't feeling so it is so subjective, but he was he was really good at sending me back like hard notes and he's brutally honest, which is I think what you need in a situation like that. Um, and it was, you know, it was like over the course of a bunch of months and I would keep sending stuff and he would keep, you know, critiquing and, and, and we would go back and forth. And then one day it was just like, I got that email where it was like, man, this sounds really good. <laughs> you, you, you nailed it. And, and it was just, it was so satisfying because, because he had been so hard on me and, and, uh, and not so much hard on me as, as you, you know, just, just being real, you know, which I think is, is what, is what we need. Yeah. If you, if you had to kind of summarize Bob's philosophy on mixing and what, and what he, or at least what he was teaching you, is, is there a way that you could do that? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, this was. This was like 2004, so it was a long time ago. But I think you know my relationship sort of continued over the years with with Bob. I mean, we don't we don't speak as much as we we used to, but every, every now and again we'll you know we'll email or jump on a phone call. Um, but I think with Bob, um, a lot of it is about the song because Bob Bob is you know tremendous songwriter in his his own right, um, and, uh, and and so for for him and I think his philosophy is really revolved around you know whatever you do in the mix needs to really serve the song and that's something that I've sort of carried over um you know to to the mixes that I've been doing recently and and um well throughout throughout my career really I mean it it always comes down to having a great song yeah I think I think that that's definitely something that uh I feel like that's the Jack Richardson influence on him too because I, 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 yeah. I, I've told this story on my podcast before, but the first time I showed Jack a mix, I was like, hey, man, can you like, uh, do you mind just giving this a listen? And he was like, sure. But if the song sucks, what difference does the mix make? <laughs> <laughs> and like, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like a after that, I've kind of I've always just kept that in the back of my mind. Like it's it it is so true. Like if there's no amount of mixing is going to fix a bad song. No, totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. And and you've also had the ability to work with uh, guys like David Bottrell as well, right? So, yeah, I mean, again, super fortunate in, in my, in my career, you know, over the last 20 years, like, so after my time with Bob had sort of run its course a little bit. He ended up, he was living in Toronto while we were sort of, while he was mentoring me. And, um, he took a job, um, with live nation and had to move to Miami. And at that time, uh, David Bottrell had moved back to Toronto and, um, Bob, I think, uh, and this might be the, the greatest thing that he ever did to help me actually. Um, I think Bob felt that I was, you know, super creative and, um, and, and, you know, good, good producer and was getting my mixing chops down. But I think he felt as though, um, I could improve my engineering chops overall. And so he really wanted to introduce me to David because he, he, he you know, Bob would always tell me that in his eyes, you know, David was one of the best engineers out there. So, um, 
so yeah, so Bob did that. He set up a meeting and, and Dave hired me to mix or sorry, Dave hired me to engineer um, a record for a band uh, that's called We Are The Take, um, which we did over a, a couple weeks together. And then, you know, we became like super fast friends. I mean, D- Dave's such a, an amazing guy. We got along so well and he really just, uh, you know, I remember we went out for coffee and he's like, I got a bunch of other projects, you know, would you work on them with me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and he was at that point, you know, because we're getting along. So I was very open with his knowledge. And, um, I really wanted to learn how to make like heavier rock records because, I, uh, I came up as a musician sort of loving blues and, and roots based music and Motown and soul. And, and, um, so I, I wasn't really, you know, I listened to heavy stuff, but when I was working, I wasn't really working on heavy stuff. And, and, you know, Dave is like the master of, of that. So to, you know, to have him open my eyes and ears to, to those types of sounds and how, how you make guitars sound massive and how you get the drums to like sit within those massive guitars and all the things he taught me over the years were, you know, it was absolutely incredible. Um, but my experience with Dave kind of continued because we ended up opening a studio together, uh, called Rattlebox. You know, he, he needed a place to work and, and, uh, I was in a lease that, that was expiring and, and, you know, we, we really enjoyed working together. So we found a, a spot in downtown Toronto and opened Rattlebox and uh, worked there for three years together. You know, I engineered for him around that time, though, like my own production career was taking off. So, um, you know, I oftentimes I'd kind of have to go find another studio to, to work out of because Dave would be working in the studio and, you know, I couldn't engineer as much for him. And, uh, it just sort of, you know, it, it, we, we worked so much and, and, and such long hours and it sort of became clear that I needed to sort of transition my studio closer to my house because I was living very North of the city. So after three years, we sort of parted ways, but, and I guess that would have been, I don't know, maybe 2008 or 2009. Um, but we still, I mean, we talk all the time. He's one of my best friends. Awesome. So tell me about your studio setup now. Like what, what are you using these days? Um, so right now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm based out of a studio, uh, close to Uxbridge. Okay. Um, which is about 45 minutes outside of Toronto. Um, a studio called chalet that's been here for like 30 years. It's an amazing spot on 40 acres of land. So I actually have like, you know, when I look outside my window, there's like forest. (laughs) That's amazing. it, it's it's pretty inspiring. Um, so I I sort of took over their their B room, which I converted into my mix room, and I can do some overdubs here. And they have a wonderful A room for um, you know tracking bands live off the floor, which I've been doing a ton of lately, um, or just you know just getting drum tracks and everything else I can kind of do in in my room. Um, I'm pretty much all in the box these days in terms of mixing. Um, huge fan of universal audio and, and, and all those plugins. Oh yeah. Um, they're great. Which has been a massive game changer for me. Um, and I recently just switched over to, from, from avid, uh, interfaces to Apollo interfaces. So that's been an exciting change for me. A little scary cause I've been, you know, working with avid for my entire career and, you know, literally three months ago made the switch, but it's been, it's been amazing. Um, you know, and then of course I've got, 
a bunch of mic pre's and compressors and mics and, and things, tools that I need when, I, when I'm recording. Um, but I am doing a fair amount of mixing these days. Uh, so really it's, it's, it's a very simple setup. Um, everything's in the box other than I come out of the box and print my mix through a, a Burl a B2 bomber. Um, it's the one piece of analog gear that's sort of left over from mixing out of the box that I just can't seem to find a suitable uh, digital equivalent to replace it. And the, I mean, the Burl, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the B2 bomber, but I haven't uh, used it. No, it's an analog to digital converter, uh, but it has a really nice transformer in it with a gain stage. So I literally just turn the gain almost full and then just mix into it and it just becomes a part of my sound. So it's it's hard to, to mix without it. Yeah. What would you say it's adding to the sound then? Uh, it adds a fair amount of color, but what it does really that, that I like is it's kind of like a glue. You know, it smooths the transients because of the way I'm, I'm hitting it. Um, it sort of allows me, it, it compresses in a way without, you know, being heavy handed with any sort of compression. Um, so I try to, you know, I, I, I obviously I'll use a mix bus compressor still. Sometimes I use a limiter at the end of everything. Um, but this kind of just puts that last little bit of like finish to me. It sounds like when I used to mix through consoles, it kind of has that sort of sound when I, when I mix through it. So that's very cool. It, yeah. It's an exciting piece that I don't know. I, I, I think it's always going to have to live there <laughs> there's always you know? some sort of secret recipe right until ua makes a version of it or something <laughs> yeah i think it'd be hard because it's a it's a like an a to d converter so it's not even unless they made the transformer but i don't think it's just the transformer that like has the sort of special mojo i think it's like the whole unit so i, <laughs> I don't know it's, it's a strange it could strange happen piece but it could yeah. happen yeah you, n you never know <laughs> awesome well i'm curious to talk a little bit about uh your production and, and when you're producing bands too, because I know you do a bunch of that as well. Yes. And uh, I was wondering, like, when when you're producing, how involved do you like to get in that process? Like, do you get involved in the songwriting side of it, or are you working on more like maybe arrangements or just getting tones? Like, what what do you think your role is? Um, I think my role typically is whatever is necessary to get the best finished product. So, typically, I work with bands. Um, I'm just, I don't know how it happened, but I, I'm, I'm, I really get the band dynamic. Uh, I don't work as much with singer songwriters, although it's something I'd love to do because it's sort of a little bit outside of my normal day to day activities as a producer. Um, so, you know, when I, when, when bands come to me, they usually have a collection of songs, you know, they might be in different States. Um, so sometimes I'm involved in the songwriting, um, but more often than not, it's more like song doctoring. You know, it's more more of an arrangement thing or coming up with, you know, extra ideas, you know, counter melodies, um, harmonies, uh, guitar parts. You, you know, I, I really like to I, I like to spend a lot of time um, in a rehearsal space on pre-production and really making sure that the songs are where they need to be, really making sure that all the parts um, that the musicians are playing are, are sort of correct and, and, and feeling really good and that they're excited playing the parts. I really don't like, I mean, I, I don't like imparting my will 
on bands per se, because I always say to them, like, you're, you're the ones that have to get up on stage and, and, and play these songs, not me. So when you leave me in my direction, um, you know, you have to feel good about it, but I'm also getting hired, you know, because I have done it for almost 20 years. So, you know, I have a a pretty good understanding of what might make an exciting arrangement. Um, And I find a lot of bands are really open minded to uh, to collaborating and and making those sort of necessary changes to get the songs to be exciting. Yeah, for sure. So when you're doing your pre-production, I I assume that that's kind of where a lot of the uh, the biggest changes would happen and and all that stuff. What um, what common mistakes or or maybe songwriting structure issues do you typically see in that stage? A lot of times, and I mean, this is probably more true with younger bands, um, more, more sort of developing bands. A lot of times, you know, bands aren't asking themselves uh, an important question, which is, does this serve the song? I mean, when, when, when I'm, when I'm arranging songs for bands, you know, I'm, I'm really looking at what's going to hold the listener's attention. Um, and especially in this day and age where, you know, we're definitely driven by playlists and singles and, and, you know, people that are, are fans of music don't necessarily have the patience that, that maybe I had when I was younger and would put vinyl on. Um, so we really need to make sure that, that the songs are concise and to the point and they don't meander, um, unless, meandering is what the song requires. You know, if I was going to produce like the Allman Brothers, you know, I, I don't think I'd want to have two minute and 30 second songs because what makes that band special is is the, the jamming. Um, so I, again, that's why I say what serves the song best. You know, there are some songs where y- if you cut out um, a chunk to make a radio edit, the song wouldn't make sense anymore. And, and, you know, not every band that I work with is going after radio. Although in, in Canada, there's, you know, there's sort of still the, I think still the need to, um, or, or drive to want to get to radio because it, it can really help, you know, promote a band obviously. Um, but yeah, for me, it's, it's, it, the, the common mistake is, is not asking yourself, like, does this, does this serve the song? Is there is there a reason why this you know one minute guitar solo in the middle of this really great hooky song needs to be there? And don't get me wrong, I'm a guitar player. I love guitar solos, but my thing is if if we're gonna put a guitar solo in, it has to be as hooky as as any other part of the song. You know, it has to it has to be some sense of melody that the listener can grab onto. Um, because at any point you have to think that someone's going to hit skip. And I think the objective really is to not hit skip, you know, get someone to listen from start to finish and not just start to finish, but say, Hey, wait a second. That, that was really cool. I need to hear that again, you know, and, and how, how do you do that? So, yeah, definitely. In terms of, um, you were talking about like crafting songs so that they hold people's attention. I, I think that like, just at least in my experience, like one of the, the, the issues that I see a lot of songwriters have is that like, or like, just musicians in general is that they think everything's important, right? Like they're like, you're talking <laughs> yeah. about that like minute long guitar solo, a guitar player is thinking like, fuck yeah, I'm awesome. I'm just ripping this wicked solo and everyone's going <laughs> to love this. Right. And it's like, how do you convince somebody that like they need to trim that down? I think that comes with experience really. You know, like we, I just spent a bunch of time with Jeff Martin from the tea party in the studio. Although I wasn't producing, I was mixing. They had recorded, um, 
the tracks for their new record in his studio in Australia and then sent me the files. And then he, on a break from their North American tour, he came to the studio for a few days and we sort of went through everything. Um, man. And he was, I mean, he's a wicked guitar player, you know, super intelligent songwriter, but he was really good at, you know, cutting things out. He would say like, you know, I don't think we need this part. And we would literally like ax parts out of the songs. And, um, he was like his own amazing filter. And I think it's just, you know, he's been doing it for so long. I think he just really understands, um, you know, what it means to have a really great song that his fan base can, you know, sink their teeth into. Um, and I just think like, I think with young bands, it, it comes with experience. And so because they don't necessarily have that experience yet under their belts, you know, bringing in an outside producer, someone like me or whoever it is that can help guide them but they need to be able to trust that, you know, I'm helping them make the right decisions and they need to be very open-minded. Um, I think for me, I'm a, I'm a pretty great judge of character and I can kind of get myself into a room with people and know pretty quickly if they're going to be open to, you know, what it is that I want to do with their music. And if it's, you know, if, if they're not so open, then I know it's going to be a struggle and maybe it's not the right time for them to be taking on a producer. Um, you know, not, not to be negative in, in, in any sort of way. Um, you know, I, I love working with developing acts. That's something that I'll always love doing. Um, to me, it's exciting to, to, to take a, to take a young band and, you know, guide them through the process and, and hopefully, you know, they keep coming back and we kind of get to grow together. I, that to me is, is really exciting. Um, but they need, they need to a hundred percent be open-minded, um, to at least trying what I'm asking. For sure. I, I feel like as producers, like we're, we're educators, you know, like people come to us because they, they think we're going to get the right tones. But the things that they walk away with afterwards aren't just the recording. It's more of the lessons of like, you know, like you said, being able to critically look at your song and 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 analyze, like, where can you trim the fat? And like, what do you need to work on between like kick and bass or stuff like that? Like, you lo like locking in elements. Right. And like, I, I think that that's ultimately what a producer brings. And, and a lot of new bands like the first time they work with somebody, they're almost like offended that you're like trying to trim <laughs> the fat and all this and that. But like at the end, they kind of make sense, right? Totally. And the, the the best thing, the most satisfying thing for me with working uh, alongside developing acts is the second time we work together, I can see how much they listened to my <laughs> guidance with the first batch of songs because I can see that they've already, they, they've sort of put it through like the Moncars filter and they're like, what, what would Brian ask of us and, and they would just do it naturally. And that, that to me is exciting because they're open-minded and they're learning and, and, and it's great. And I also learn, I mean, I, I learn from young bands as well. You know, I love, I mean, I've been doing it a long time. So sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to find inspiration, but when you work with, with younger acts that are like really excited, um, you know, and they're constantly introducing me to, to new bands and, and new music, things that I hadn't really heard of. And, and that to me is like, insanely inspiring so that's yeah, awesome yeah i guess you, you may have already answered this question but i guess in your opinion what ends up making a good song ah i mean there's that's a that's a pretty tough question um i think i think what makes a good song is a connection really you know a connection from the from the musician into the song and then from the song to the listener 
you know, like the, my favorite songs, the songs that I keep coming back to that, like, I can't go a week without listening to for one reason or one reason or another, I connect to it, you know, and whether it's a lyrical thing, whether it's a melodic thing, whether it's a groove thing. And I think there's a lot of factors that, that go into that type of connection that, 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 that you have. And sometimes it's unexplained. Like there's just songs in my life that I'll listen to and kind of like, you know, reminds me of a time in my life that I loved or reminds me it's uh, of a time in my life that maybe, you know, was a little more difficult, but still sort of necessary to put myself through those feelings. So I think to me, it's, it, it it's a connection. Um, not every song you're going to have a connection with. Um, but if I can find a connection within the songs that I'm producing, then I think at the end of the day, we, we end up with, uh, you know, with, with, with a better product. So I think really the answer to that question for me is, is just the connection. Yeah. And so for songs that you're not feeling a connection with, are those the ones that you would typically tell a band, like, this is just, isn't working. Like this isn't the song or, or, or do you just leave it to them because they probably have, they feel like they have a connection to it. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I think you can tell pretty quickly, you know, like what the motivation is behind a band writing a song. If they're just writing a song because they want to have like a massive hit to me, that, that, that motivation is, uh, well, I mean, it, it serves, it serves a purpose, but it doesn't necessarily serve uh, a purpose for, for me. Um, but if it's an honest thing that, that obviously, you know, they've put a lot of time into, and maybe even though I don't connect to it, um, you know, it's definitely something I would give time to. And, and then hopefully at the end of it, I would end up with some sort of connection to it, you know, having sort of had my hand in it. I mean, I certainly, you know, I, I don't know how many songs I've ever worked on over, over 18 years. It's gotta be a lot. Uh, I'm sure that there's been songs where, you know, I started out not having that connection, but once my name goes on it and, and, and I've had an influence on that song, then, then I have a bit of a connection to it. Um, but then there's definitely like, but you know, bands send me songs where like instantly I get connected to something where it's just like, holy shit, I have to work on this. You know, I have to, I have to get this job. I have to take this on, you know, and it becomes a very passionate thing. Um, and it, it, it happens, you know, it happens more often than not. Um, you know, people that, that are close to me that know me know how excited I get about things and, and over the top. So it doesn't, it's not hard for something to connect with me. I'm very open to it. That, that's awesome. <laughs> well, it just makes the whole experience of working on those songs that much better if like the person working on them is connected to it and is just as excited about it, you know? Well, yeah, we spend so much time. I mean, like so much time in the studio, outside of the studio. I'm usually mixing, you know, I would say I mix 99% of the projects that I produce. So I'm like from start to finish, you know, it's like days on a song. So it does definitely help to, to feel good about that song and to have that connection, um, you know, and again, not like not every song is, is going to be a hit and bands are still making records. And I, I really enjoy, you know, working on those album tracks where you can maybe get a little quirky with things and, uh, you know, sort of expand and, and on, on parts a little bit more. And and I do I think this sort of common factor or, or I guess common thing that 
unites sort of all the projects that I work on is great musicianship. For whatever reason, I, I tend to attract bands that can really play. That, um, that's a good thing to have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm so fortunate. I mean, they're, you know, so you, you, you can push them and tell them and, and ask them to do things that they're fully capable of doing. And, and it gets, it gets really exciting. Um, so, yeah, I mean that, 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 so even that musical connection, you know, just, 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 to be able to relate to the bands and, 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 and have them really, you know, push them super hard in the studio, but, you know, but also be inspired by the, like the sheer musicianship that that's like in front of me is awesome. Yeah, for sure. You had mentioned that you're doing a lot more mixing these days. Um, so I'm curious to talk a little bit more about your, your mixing process. Um, when you're, when you're getting started with a mix, like what's your mindset going into that? Like, where do you start? What, what's your focus? Hmm. Uh, So, I'm very goal oriented when it comes to mixing. Um, For me personally, I find that sort of going into a mix with um, a little bit of a, a, of an end game in mind, I think can go a long way because then you're always mixing with a purpose um, instead of just like, you you know, turning knobs and pushing faders until something sounds good. You know, to, to, to give you an example, I got to mix the latest Our Lady Peace album, Somethingness. Um, you know, I, I mixed a good chunk of that record, and and uh, in, including the first single, "Drop Me in the Water." And you know, when they when they sent me the files, I, I was fortunate that I had seen them play it live before, so I kind of knew the energy in, in that song. And, and it it's quite an aggressive song, and and there's parts of it that will really you know remind their fan base of. Um, you know, some of their older material, but still sounding like pretty modern and fresh. So that, that to me was an approach and a goal that I, that I, that I kept in mind the whole time I was mixing. And it was, you know, let's make this sound modern and current, but let's also have aspects of, of the sonic characteristics that would remind the fan base of, you know, all the old songs that they loved. Um, and then again, I think that helps going back to connections you know, that, that helps connect the song to, to a fan base, um, so th- that's kind of where I start. You know, I, I, I have these ideas in my head of, of where I want to see a song go. Um, I, I get my Pro Tools session up and running with like sort of a rough balance. Um, and then I just start working on it. Yeah. No, I, I like what you said about uh, seeing the band live, because I, I think that that's so true that like sometimes you see a band live and it just creates this whole other life to the or uh, like shape to the song. You know, I can think of like a band recently that that approached me to work with some stuff like they sent me their demo and the demo just sounded very like dry and raw. And then I saw them live recently and it was like, holy shit, like there's like a whole other attitude to this song live, you know? Right. It makes you want to shape the song in a different way, right? A hundred percent does. It it always does. And and yeah, I'm just that that's just I, I find that it helps me because otherwise I, I, it could take days to finish a mix because you're really like you're searching. And I find that if, if I have a goal in mind, it could be anything. Um, but if I ask myself, is this lead is, you know, is, is, is what I'm doing now leading me closer to that goal? And if the answer is no, then I know I need to move away and try something else. But if the answer is yes, then I can keep going. And for whatever reason in my mind, it just helps me, you know, be motivated and, and, and mix fast, make quick decisions. So how long does it normally take you to finish most mixes then? It all depends what it is and, and how tricky it is. Um, I find these days, 
there's a lot of production that ends up happening in mixes. You know, I'm not just mixing. I'm I'm being sent like extra guitar parts and extra keyboard parts and percussion and things. And, and I'm sort of, I, I get the instruction of, um, you know, use what you want to use. So then all of a sudden you're, you're not just mixing, but you're helping like shape the song in a way, you know, sometimes it's, it's rearranging songs. You know, I've definitely been involved in mixes where you're like at the end, you start cutting parts out or, you know, duplicating parts and creating new things. And so, I think like if it was just a straight up mix, like here are the files go to work. It's usually a day of mix. If it's like a live off the floor blues record or something like that, then probably two or three a day I could do. But if it's, you know, its own beast where I really need to be careful and take take the time to get the tones to be right and do all the things that I love to do in a mix, it's usually a day. Typically what I'll do is mix all day, um, go home, rest, give my ears a break and come back the next morning, give one final listen and then send it off to the band and then, you know, and then start working on the second song. Yeah. It's interesting that you were talking about kind of producing in the mixing stage. Cause you know, most people think of it as like this linear path where, you know, you record or you're producing it, you record it, you edit, you, you mix. Um, so when it comes to those kind of sessions where you're doing that production role, how do you uh, stay focused with it? Because like you could do all sorts of work to make that mix finish and like, you know, kind of reproduce the song and arrange it and all that stuff. But then like you might send it off to the band and they're like, well, what did you do with our song? Right. Like, did you, do you ever experience that? Or like, are you do you have like a process that you handle or do you you follow with those kind of specific projects? Um, Yeah, I usually won't. I usually won't cut things up um, without talking to the band first. Sometimes it comes from the band. Sometimes, you know, they'll have listened to a rough mix for a long time and realize like, well, wait a second, you know, this bridge is like double the length it needs to be, you know, and then they'll, they'll sort of, you know, they'll get me to, to, to take care of it. Other times, you know, I I'll listen and then I'll call the band and say, look, you know, I have this idea of an arrangement that that might work a little bit better and be a little bit more exciting. Do you mind if I try it out and see what you think? You know, and and nine times out of ten, when I do that and they listen, they're like, "Yeah, that's cool. We never thought of that." Um, you know, every once in a while, it's like, "No, we dig what we did and let's stick to it." And I mean, it's their prerogative. They're hiring me as a mixer, not you know, not as a producer. But um, but my production chops, I think, you know come to light a lot when I'm mixing, you know, and, and it's, it's funny because you mentioned like the linear process, which is definitely, you know, when I started out, um, in 2000 and I was mixing on a console, you know, to, to task D 88 machines, it was very linear. It was like, here's the recording and here's the mix. And you never did any additional recording in the mix process. It was like you stripped your patch bay from recording, <laughs> you set up to mix and, and then and then you, you went at it. But nowadays, it, like it, it's weird the, the way we've come, because there's a lot of bands that I've worked with that have like really great home studios and they'll do these demos that when I when I get to them, I'm like, wow, this this sounds really good. And a lot of times we'll end up using certain things from those demos will like appear on 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 the actual master. So. Now it's like we're kind of jumping back and forth. And it, it's it's interesting to me that it's it's almost a lot more collaborative than it used to be, um, which in certain ways 
can be really exciting. Um, but in other ways, you know, it, it might hold people back a little bit. Um, just in terms of having the ability to change things in the mix. You know, I try to, I try to do my best from a, from a production standpoint when I'm working with a band to guide that band to a point where when I print a rough mix, it's pretty much how that track is going to be. And then I just go in and, and, and do the things to sort of sonically enhance and sweeten the mix from the rough mix. But every once in a while, even I'll listen and think like, oh, wait a second. I wish we'd recorded this extra guitar part or I wish there was this harmony thing. And I'll bring the band back in and, and say like, OK, I've got this mix, but I think it could use this extra part and, you know, we'll, we'll do it. So it is it's very different than it was, but in a way, I, I think a little bit more exciting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when that you kind of mention it like that, that like you are still adding elements to the song in, in that mixing stage, because I think that like one thing a lot of people struggle with is knowing when they're done a mix and like when they just need to sit, sit back and like call it a night kind of thing. And, and when you're adding this element of like, well, we can add some more stuff. It, it just like, it like totally blows the door out and like, you can just do whatever you want and it's like fair game. And, and so how do you typically know when you're done a mix? That's like a, I mean, it's almost a philosophical question that's, that's <laughs> in, in, in a way. I mean, and, and I, I have to, it's hard to verbalize because it's a feeling that I get. It's funny. It's like, there's just, there's just a feeling I get when I know that like the track is just jumping off the speakers in the right way. And it's like really impacting me in a way that, that I love. And I think, I think you have to come to terms with the fact that you may feel like something is never done. You know, that that's, it's just human nature to keep working. Like it's, it's, it's our passion, it's our creativity and we want to keep working on it. We're always going to want to keep working on it, but something that I always try to remember and I remind my clients all the time is that this recording is just a slice of where you're at right now. You know, it's not, I mean, maybe it dictates where you're going, certainly shows you where you've come from, but really it's, it's, we're in the moment right now. And you could always think to yourself, I could do something better, but you did it in, in the moment and, and it's real and it's great. Um, so I, I just try to, I just try to remind myself, you know, if I, if, if I opened a mix from four years ago, I probably you know, mix it in a different way now because I've grown so much over, over four years. I mean, it's only, it's only natural, but there's a beauty to those mixes when I listen to them from back then, like almost like an innocence where I was like really trying to figure things out. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I, I enjoy that. So when I, when I go to mix, it's just, it, again, it's, it's like a, it's a feeling that, that I get where I know I'm like, okay, this is, this is it. This is, this is close. Sometimes it's like, I nailed it. I got to send it to the client. And other times it's, this is like 95% there. I think we should like bring it to the client now and get their feedback. Um, and then let them help me get that last 5%. That makes a lot of sense. Cause yeah, when you get to that point where you're like, this is feeling really good, but there's that, like, maybe I could do more. Like that's, that's usually like a good spot to stop because yeah, like you said, like they that they're gonna help you with that last five percent and and let you know if you are totally out to lunch or if you're in the right ballpark. 
Yeah, and there, there's definitely been times like I, I, I'm a pretty good filter of my own work. So there's a lot of times where like, you know, I'll slave over a mix and then maybe I'll go out for dinner and come back and listen and I'll be like, well, wait a second. This mix was better four hours ago. And I'll literally like go back to my my save as and just go back four hours and start again. Um, that that definitely happens. You know, you mix yourself into a corner from time to time. You can't really get yourself out of it. Or maybe maybe it was just maybe, you know, I, I did mention, you know, being goal oriented, but sometimes the goals change, right? Like sometimes you start working on it with a goal in mind and you're like, wait a second, there's actually this other goal that I want to accomplish. And then maybe you have to go back and, and, and make some changes based on like this new philosophy towards the mix. Um, that, that happens too, you know, just sort of being open-minded, but it's hard because as a mixer, you're on your own. You know, I don't, it's so rare that I have clients with me. You know, I had Jeff Martin with me while I was mixing for three days. We didn't finish the record in three days, but that was great. Cause we like super collaborative, um, you know, in, in terms of us like kind of working together towards that sort of common goal, which was awesome, you know, made things go by a lot faster, just, you know, in, in terms of him saying, yeah, I love that or no, like, let's try to find a different tone. Um, but a lot of times it's just me on my own doing that, pretending I'm the client thinking like, is this what they're going to love? So, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I think that when you have that client input, it, it just gives you a totally different perspective of, of what you're doing. And, you know, because as engineers, like we're so attached to it and we're like, oh, are they going to are they going to like this? Or are they not? And, you know, sometimes just having that person be like, you know what, you're the you're the expert. You're making this sound great. Like, yeah, know, that, that's like sometimes all you need to hear. Right. Totally. And, and the other thing that I remind myself of a lot, I mean, it took a while to kind of realize this um, was that I I am getting hired because of of other material that clients have heard that I've worked on. So I know that, that they're hiring me because I do things a certain way and I make things sound a certain way. Um, so I try not to like deviate too far from, from the things that I love. Like I'm a, I'm a massive fan of distortion. I love distorting things. I love distorting drums, bass, vocals, I love putting Sans Amp and Decapitator on everything. I have like a Sound Toys radiator on my mix bus, adding a little bit of distortion to my entire mix. Everything that I do it has a bit of a dirty sonic vibe to it. Um, and I find that because I've been doing that for, for a while, bands are kind of seeking me out for those types of sounds. Um, and they think that, you know, their material would work with that type of mix in mind. So I think maybe that that makes it a little bit easier for me in terms of knowing when I'm finished and in terms of pleasing the clients because, um, you know, because they are aware of what I've worked on in the past. Yeah. So you'd mentioned having goals when you start a project like what, in your opinion, what makes a great mix? Like, what are your goals trying to get you to? Um. I guess in maybe this question might be a little bit genre specific okay. um, just in terms of, you know, me, me being more of a rock mixer and uh, but a little bit of like blues and roots and things. So I like a lot of it's going to come down to, to vocals, um, you know, making sure that the vocal is clear and, and present and, you know, sort of just right within the track so that everyone can hear the lyrics. Like I think, you know, I have to think about, people that listen to music casually, um, I think what they take away are 
or what they would take away from a song would be lyrics and melody. So I need to make sure that that you know you can hear all of that and that it's clear. But but also you know in terms of rock music, it's sort of that bigness, the larger than life feeling that you get when you listen to to a rock track. You know, like if, if you remember the first time you heard like Paradise City or Sweet Emotion or any of those, you know, or like Black Dog and just that immediacy of like how everything is just so in your face. You know, it's not just the vocal that's in your face. It's the kick drum and the snare drum and the bass and the guitars panned wide and like super big. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the those are all elements that that go into like a really good rock mix for me is is you know get, getting the you know i guess first maybe getting the drums to like really speak in a in a, in a good way and I, I i i use the phrase like jump off the speakers a lot because when when you get it to the point where it's that exciting that it feels like it's jumping off the speakers then you're in a good spot or at least i know i'm in a good spot um it's but I mean, again, there's there's like there are so many factors in, in, into what makes a good mix. But it also sort of fuels the way that I mix. Like I used to when I was on a console, I would solo certain elements. You know, I'd maybe like start with the kick drum and solo and EQ it. And but I started to realize, and it it only hit me when I was working in the box more um, that that that's not the best way to do it because sure I can make a kick drum sound amazing, but what difference does it make, you know, if it's not within the context of the song. So now I tend to just get my rough mix going, um, through my mix bus always. So I'm, I'm mixing through the mix bus cause the mix bus is all in the box and it kind of acts as your console in the box. So that sound is something I'm very familiar with. I've sort of crafted, crafted it over the last five years since I've, started mixing in the box. Um, and so I'll just get my rough mix going and then I'll start working on elements. You know, I might work on the kick drum. I won't solo it. I'll, I'll work on it in place with, you know, all, all the rest of my tracks, but then I might jump to the bass and get it to like really sit nicely with the kick drum. And then, and then maybe I go to the snare, you know, but almost always I'll get the vocal in really early. Um, like get it sounding the way I want it to sound and then craft the rest of the, the mix around the vocal. Because again, going back to what I said a couple minutes ago, like really is important to hear the vocal. Um, you know, so it's it's deciding on the vocal treatment. You know, I use a lot of delays. Lately, I, I've, I've never been much of a reverb guy. Definitely like more like slapback delays to kind of get room sounds and things like that. But some of the UAD plugins that that they've come out with in the last little while, like reverb wise, like the the Capital Room or the capital chamber, sorry, is, is like unreal. Um, it's such good reverb that it, it like sounds good. And I've, I found myself using it now, like using more reverbs on mixes just cause it does sound really nice. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm being like, no, no, that, that, that's your question. <laughs> no, that, that, that's pretty cool. It's a good insight into what you're doing and like your approach to it. And, and I definitely agree with you. And I think we have a lot of similar approaches to it. Um, you had mentioned drums and, and one of the things that I've always really admired about your productions is the, 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 the sound of your drums. They always sound massive, like, especially like your kick and snare. I've always found that you've, you've somehow managed to master the art of getting them to sound really fat and full and beefy, but then like with a good amount of transient as well. And it just bites through the heavy stuff, but it doesn't sound muddy or get buried in the mix or like drown out other stuff. Like 
What's um? I was wondering if you could maybe give some detail in terms of your process behind. Maybe that's something that you kind of determine early on when you're tracking or in your mixing stages. Like, what what's your typical process look like when you're doing drums? Um. Yeah, I mean, to me, like it's funny being a guitar player, and I mean, this maybe ties back to your one of your first questions about how being a guitar player influences me in the studio. For me, it was always kind of easy to get guitar sounds. I, I wouldn't say easy. I don't think that's ever a good word to use in the studio necessarily, but like I didn't find it as challenging because I'd heard guitar my whole life, you know, coming from amplifiers and how my guitar would fit in with bands when I was playing with bands. So that to me was was something that that came very naturally. But drums is something that is somewhat unnatural. And even the way that we like well, unnatural to me, but the way that we mic drums is kind of unnatural too. I mean, we, we, we put mics super close to the source. Like we would never put our ear next to a snare drum. That'd be crazy. So we're used to hearing, we're, like we're used, we're used to hearing drums in a room, you know, as, as people like that. So the room sound plays a lot into what I do um, in terms of getting drums. I know there's been, especially in modern rock, there's sort of this, there was a trend for a while to have like a lot of sample based drums, um, super tight rooms. Like you didn't really hear the room so much. And it was like, it was just like kicks and snares that sounded like they were cutting through and were a little, I mean, they were a little hyped and, and I would say unnatural, but it's sort of what served those, you know, massive like detuned guitars and kind of, kind of worked. Um, but I've always been in love with you know, kind of roomier sounds. And that's something that I still strive to get, um, whether I'm recording, producing, or mixing. Um, don't get me wrong. I still use drum samples on every project. Well, almost every project I work on just lightly, I'll put them in. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, can, can I get the drums to sound great in the room? If, if I'm out in the room and I hear that the drums sound great, you know, it doesn't matter what mics I'm using. It doesn't matter how close or far they are from the kit doesn't matter if I use one mic in front of the kit or I use 18 mics on the kit, like a good sounding kit in a good sounding room is always going to sound good. It's hard to mess that up. Um, so I like to bring a drum tech in when I'm, when I, when I'm producing, um, I, I use a wonderful human being named James Forsyth who happens to, uh, work with our lady peace. He's their tech on the road. Um, and he's got a, an amazing old Gretsch kit that makes it, onto like 90% of all of my recordings. Um, so the drums that you hear are usually, it's usually this old Gretsch kit that he's kept in amazing shape. And he just really, he understands how drums need to sound in a room. You know, how it, his experience sort of tuning drums, you know, in arenas, you know, and in, in, in clubs and, and, and things like that. Like it really, you know, really helps me in the studio and I can give him direction and he'll, you know, tune the drums in certain ways that, that I, you know, so that I can hear the drums speak properly for the song. Um, but then even when I'm mixing, you know, I'll use tools to, to enhance the rooms, like, um, going back to the UAD stuff. Um, they make the, this amazing ocean way plugin where they, they basically sampled the, the ocean way studios and, um, and you can place the drums sort of in the ocean way room. And I, I'll use that a ton. Um, if, if I get mixes where the room mics need to be enhanced so that I can kind of create 
the sounds that I hear in my head, you know, the, the sort of the roominess. Um, but I think a lot of what maybe you were hearing and, and, and you so kindly pointed out about, about my drum sounds, a lot of it comes in the, in the mix. Um, I, I lean more towards, um, parallel compression than I do towards compressing, um, individual elements. Um, so for example, I'll have a kick drum track, um, that I may not compress. I may not actually insert a compressor on it. If the drummer's really good and it doesn't need like dynamic help, if the drummer's dynamic all on their own, um, then I can I can sort of route that kick through a series of parallel buses. And each each mix I do, my my I, I'll have several drum parallel buses that I can run a signal or a track to at any given time. So. I have one that's, that's like a tape based saturation plugin. Um, it's the, the, uh, UAD Studer plugin. Um, and then, and then I'll have a couple different compressors, like a mono compressor for kick and snare, and then a, a stereo compressor for like rooms and, and things. And then I might have, um, uh, a couple buses that are just like, sort of special effect type things that I can get weird with. Like there's the, um, I can't remember who makes it. It might be a company called good Hertz, but it's like the Wolfpack. Um, sorry, Wolfpack that, that, that band's drum plugin is unreal. I mean, it's, it's so gnarly and cool and you can lo-fi things. And, um, so I might have that. And, and what, what it's allowing me to do is keep the natural transients so that you're hearing the kick as if it was played. I'm not, altering the immediate transients, but then I'm like slamming parallel with parallel buses and then bringing those back into the mix for taste. So it's like really enhancing the sounds that are there, but allowing the transients to still breathe, which I think is important. You know, like when you listen to Zeppelin, like the, the, the dynamics in Bonham's footwork and, in in and how he handled the, you know, the snares and how heavy he was of a player. And I think if you compressed the crap out of that kick drum, it just wouldn't sound right. You know, it's, it's letting it, it breathes. It always breathes. And so, you know, even though we're living in more of a modern time where, you know, guitars are super big and we're layering way more guitars than, you know, than any producer would have had the ability to do in, in the seventies. Um, but I still, I don't know. I still, for me, I want it to sound honest and real. So that, that sort of the, the experimenting with, the, with parallel buses really helps me keep that sense of realism, but still put it in a modern context. I love that. Yeah. I think it's something that I mean, a lot of people will add like one parallel bus because they, you know, they just hear parallel compression. So they just think one parallel channel is all you need. But I like that approach of being able to like have those different layers of it and, you know, find that blend while keeping the the original transits and stuff in there. Because like I think of I think a lot about um, like the drums, for example, for for like Monine or Circus Survive, like those records there. Like I love how the kick and snare sound on those ones. And yes, and that's something that like I, I know you, you only worked on the one Monine album, right? Yeah, we did the the last one. Yeah, but I like I, I've always found that at least in their productions, uh, they, they've always had a lot of like bite on the snare 
and uh and and i feel like when when they started working with you they definitely amplified that a little bit more and like you know got the bite out of it still fat sounds and 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 i love the sound of that stuff so kudos to you man thank you (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate it that was fun man that was like i remember we did the drums at metalworks and like the only they, they had kind of a deadline because they were going to tour in Australia. So we had like a couple months to get the record done. And we like literally went into Metalworks. It was like the 1st of January, whatever that year was. And we had like two days to get 14 beds done. And uh, it was awesome. I mean, that working with those guys was, I mean, they're, they're some of the, the, the most talented and nicest people that you, you could ever work with. That's awesome. So speaking of Monin, uh, one of the things that I've always really admired about their records and, and uh, I was curious to get your input on kind of the story about it, but I've always found that they've, they've had a great amount of detail in like how they use effects and like creating the ambience and uh, you know, creating the space and using the delays and, you know, changing the times and all that stuff to get these crazy sounds. Like what, what's that process look like from the production standpoint? Like, are you, is that something that like those guys just know what they're doing? They're coming in with that. Or or, are you just like spending some time in the studio being like, guys, let's just fuck around with stuff and, and get these awesome sounds. (laughs) I think like the, with that band in particular, they're like super organized, like, you know, Kenny and and hippie both, um, they sort of came came into the sessions sort of knowing how they wanted the guitars to sound. Um, and certainly hippie, like he uses a lot of effects and a lot of like interesting pitch shifters and delays. And, 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 um, he just like, he's sort of a master of those, of those pedals. You know, I mean, he's, he's a, an incredible guitar player, super unique. I don't know that I've ever worked with anyone quite like him. Um, just in terms of like his melodic sensibilities and his approach to, um, you know, to writing his parts, but he's also a master of like what he has on his pedal board. Like he really knows how things are going to react on his pedal board. And so that kind of made it again, I don't like to use the word easy, but it was very, it was very natural. There was never like, I, I mean, I get, this was a while ago, so I, I don't remember everything about it, but I, I remember, you know, us walking away every day thinking, wow, that was really inspiring. Um, I think from a production standpoint, I mean, I learned a lot uh, as a producer on that record in particular um, because I had never really used that many effects on guitars and I had never really used, um, I'd never really thought about guitars in that sort of ambient sense. And uh, and that's something I took away, you know, how, how to sort of like, weave pedals together to create sort of really interesting, unique sounds. Um, and sometimes random that that's, what's cool about it. When, when you do, you know, when, when you run a delay pedal into a pitch shifter, into a reverb and you hit some chords, every time you do it, it's going to be slightly different. And that sort of randomness is super cool. Something I still use to this day where, you know, even if it's like, like a rootsier record, I'll, I'll always create some kind of ambience with guitars. And, and it really goes back to, you know, working with Kenny and, and, and hippie in the studio on those, on those sounds. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Um, another thing I really admire about a lot of your recordings is the, the low end. And I, I think it may be 
you know, you had mentioned that back in the day you were really into like a lot of like the, the Motown stuff and that was kind of your upbringing. And then you wanted to work with, with David Bottrell to learn more about the heavier side. And, and he's just, he's a master of getting like those big, full, heavy, beefy tones. Um, when it comes to getting the low end, right. What are some of your tips for that? Um, I think for me, it's having a set of speakers that I really know intimately. Um, I think you can't get the low end right if you don't really have that, you know, a solid relationship with your monitors because you, you'll always be guessing. Um, so I've got a set of monitors and they're, I mean, you can't see them obviously over the podcast. Um, they're called spiral groove studio ones and and a mastering engineer friend of mine, Brian Lucy turned me on to them uh, a number of years ago and they're made out of bamboo. They're really small. uh, But the bottom end is like, is very impressive on them and very honest. There's no hyping whatsoever. So I can really almost without a sub, which blows my mind because if you saw how small they were, they're like little like bookshelf speakers. Um, if you, if you saw how small they were, you, you, you'd say there's no way you're mixing on those speakers. Um, but I, I can really tell, you know, I, I can tell how far I, I'm able to push bottom end. And I think these days we're, you know, things have a ton of bottom. I mean, there's, it's almost like, you know, we're in rock music, we're taking a cue from, from the urban side of things and like using subs more and, um, sub frequencies, I should say, like on a, on a kick drum and a bass to really bring those lows out. Um, so I think it's just, it, it, you know, it's just a matter of like, of me really like understanding and not overdoing the bottom end. Um, I'll always do the car test. You know, I'll take my mix out to the car and make sure it's not too bottom heavy. I think that's probably one of the most difficult things in mixing is shaping the the bottom and getting it to, to work properly and not muddy up everything else and be just right. So I think probably because I think that way, I focus on it a lot when I'm mixing, um, you know, and then sometimes it's afraid it, it's not being afraid to like cut some bottom end out if it's if it's not needed. You know, I, I do like things that like live around 60 hertz, but sometimes it's better if they live around 120 hertz instead of 60 hertz and like, you know, filtering out some of the subs to kind of get the 120 to kind of, you know, be more impactful is sometimes what's necessary. Um, but I think everything goes back to to those speakers, you know, and, and I, I'll often tell sort of young mixers, like if you don't understand your speakers or you don't have, um, you know, if it, like, like a lot of sort of entry level monitors, I find hype the, the bottom end a lot. Um, so I would say, you know, don't, don't mix on headphones, but if there's a pair of headphones that you know really well, check your bottom end on those headphones, you know, check in the car, um, I also check on my laptop speakers to make sure because I am shaping the bottom end. Um, I want to make sure that there's still enough attack in, in, in the bass so that you can hear the note definition and there's still, you, you know, a fair amount of point to the kick drum so that it doesn't disappear when you translate to the laptop laptop speakers. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's, there's factors that make up those sounds and they might not just be bottom end. It might be like, how do you shape the mid range so that, you know, when, when, when a kid listens to a song for the first time on their phone without headphones, they can still hear the kick drum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I like that. I think, I think you nailed it. Like it really just comes down to understanding your monitors. And even if you do have those monitors that hype up the low end, I still feel like a, 
you you could still make great mixes on those monitors as long as you understand what you're hearing out of them. A hundred percent. And like, no, I don't mean to like, you know, sort of belittle those types of monitors um, because they're important. And I've mixed, I mean, I had a pair of Adam A sevens for a lot of my career that I, that I absolutely loved. Um, they, then I moved to a studio where they just didn't work for whatever reason. I had to get another pair of monitors. They didn't sound right in the room, um, which is, which has a large play in, in to how your monitors sound is, you know, how, like if they're too big for your room, then you'll never be able to judge the bottom end. Um, but I think you're right. You, you know, it is helpful to me. Like I've got a pair of those Aventones, um, which are like the, the sort of, you know, the newer Oratones just, just for, you know, hearing how things might sound outside of the studio hearing, although it doesn't, they don't go very low, but you can still judge the bottom on them. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I think an endless way of checking mixes these days, which is really for sure. Cool. Yeah. So for people who might be just getting started out with mixing and, and getting into it, um, what advice would you have for someone like that? I think, I think my, the best advice is listen to as much music as possible. Um, you know, be, be open-minded to all types of music. That's maybe the one, the one thing I look back on my career and because I'm such a rock guy, um, my, I'm, I'm so passionate about rock music that, that like it maybe keeps me from other projects almost to a fault, but Hey, it's what I love doing. And I'm like passionate about it. So, so it's worked out. Um, but I think these days, I think, you know, being able to do multiple things is always good. Um, you know, be true to yourself and, um, you know, push yourself always and maybe understand where, where you are in the process. You know, I always sort of, I always knew, um, and I never, I never really lied to myself. I always kind of knew where I was and I knew that it would take time in my career to get to the point where I wanted to be. And, and I think it's, uh, I think, I think it's important to sort of in, in, enjoy the ride. You know, it's, it, it's kept my career for the last 18 years, super interesting. And it's sort of, I mean, to go back to, to, to the basketball game last night, I don't know if you heard Nick nurse in his press conference after the, I didn't, after the game, someone, someone asked him, you know, did, he didn't take the typical approach to, to becoming an NBA coach. He had to kind of move around, um, being a coach in, in, in sort of like college divisions and, and, and things, and, and then sort of made his way to being a head coach. And they asked, you know, if it ever bothered him that he had to come that way. And he said that he enjoyed every job, you know, in the moment that he never wished for anything more, that he was just passionate about getting the wins in, in those jobs. And to me, that's really interesting because it, it really resonated, um, you know, with, with my philosophies always been the same, you know, sure. When I was younger, I always dreamed with about working with, um, you know, my favorite bands because who doesn't, but you know, I wasn't at a point where I could work with those bands. And, and so it was really like, you know, every project I worked on was a learning experience to get myself to the point where I could work with the bands that I really wanted to work with. Um, and, and I was honest the whole time every step of the way. And it took, it took a while to get where I wanted to be, but I stuck to it, you know, and, and, uh, and stuck with it and, and always, always pushed myself. So I think, I think 
my advice to to someone you know that's just starting out is try to find a way to stay inspired all the time. Take on as much work as you can because you're only going to get better um, with each mix. So you know, go, even if it's you know if you if you don't have clients at at, at at any given time, go and find you know some tracks that you can mix. Or if you you know if you're friends with a band that has tracks that need to be mixed, um, or maybe they they've they've had it mixed already, but they'll give you the tracks to to play with and experiment with. You know, the 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 more mixes you do, the quicker you'll you'll sort of come into your own. Um, yeah, and I think that's maybe the best, best advice I can give for sure. I, I, I love that. That's great. Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with all of that. Cause you're right. Like the more you work on stuff, the better you're going to get. And it just takes time. You can't, you can't expect to just jump in and be working with those, those all-stars like you, like you said, you know? Yeah, no. And, and that's it. And it's just being honest. You know, if you're, if you're, I think if you're passionate about something and, and you, and you love it and you work tirelessly at it, eventually you'll get to the point where you, where you want to be, you know, for some people it happens quick for other people. It, it, it takes time. Um, but I think you always have to look back and, and, and treat each new project as a success, you know, and, and, and learn, you know, there's, there's only a certain amount of people in the world that, that these days can, um, can kind of make a living, working in music, you know, it's not as booming as it once was. I'm sure <laughs> most people are aware. So I think if you, if, if, if you can make somewhat of a living doing this, then you're incredibly successful, you know, and that, that's kind of how you have to look at it. That's awesome. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. So we should probably start to wrap up. Cause I know that you're taking time out of, uh, out of mixing today to, to have this chat. So I don't want to keep you, but, um, how can people follow you online and learn more about you? Um, yeah, I think, you know, just hit, hit up my website, um, brianmoncars.com. Um, you'll, you know, you'll, f not a ton of stuff there, but you'll hear, you know, there, you'll hear some of my favorite pieces of work and my bios there. Um, but I, I am, uh, pretty great with posting to Instagram. I'm just at Moncars. Um, and also my, my personal Facebook, you know, add me on Facebook. Um, it's just Brian Moncars. Um, fi find me there, and and I don't post on Facebook as much as I should, but I, I'm still I'm still there. But Instagram, I'm like almost daily posting stuff. So, um, you know, stuff from my sessions. Uh, I did some videos for for Pure Mix, so there's like links for that stuff on there. And um, yeah, awesome, cool. That's, that's where I am. That's wicked. And uh, lastly, any cool projects that you're working on now that you want to talk about or that you can share about? Yeah, there's a couple things in in the works. I mean, I think. I'm really excited. Yesterday, I just got back the masters for the for the new Tea Party album. That was a that was a lot of work. So to kind of hear it finished um, was was super exciting for me yesterday. Um, and I had such a blast working with that band. I mean, they're so talented. Um, so to, you know, to 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 work with Jeff in the studio was was definitely a career highlight for me. Um, so that, that's really exciting. I'm not quite sure when the album will come out, but they just released the second single last week. Um, so you can, you can check that out. Um, I'm also really excited to be mixing, um, sort of a blues rock, uh, artist named Philip Sace, who's, uh, you know, probably one of, one of my favorite guitar players around. He's just, I mean, he, he, he's just, 
such an inspiring guitar player, but also has an amazing voice and is a really great songwriter. Um, oddly enough, Phil and I grew up in like neighboring high schools in Toronto. Um, so we have like a real personal connection that goes back many, many, many years. And we sort of fell out of touch. He moved to LA and, um, and, and, sort of, he ended up playing guitar for Melissa Etheridge for a long time. And, um, now he's doing the solo thing again. And we reconnected at a show a few years ago of his and, and, you know, kind of rekindled our friendship, which is super cool. So I'm really excited to, to get to work with him. I mean, to me, that's, that's, it's just an awesome thing. Um, and then I've got a few developing projects that, that I'm really excited about uh, a young Toronto band called the fame that I'm producing um, that are starting to, to, to do really well, getting some like great shows and um, Brandon, the, the main singer songwriter uh, I think is a, a uniquely talented songwriter. Um, he's young and he's just going to grow into something pretty special. Um, you know, I'm finishing up mixes right now for a band from Nanaimo that I produced um, called Wise Young Blood that uh, I'm also really excited about. It has a, kind of a the cult meets Arctic Monkeys vibe to it, which I think is really interesting. And then I just had for a week uh, up at the chalet where my studio is, um, I just had a, a, a band from out east called Andre Petipa and the Giants. And again, like really great songwriting. Um, and uh, that was that was fun because they came and lived actually like in the studio. There's rooms that bands can rent. So they were here for seven days living and breathing their album, which was a, which was good fun. So that won't get mixed until the end of August. But um, but yeah, lot, lots of stuff on the go, you know, some mixing projects some production projects um, really keeps things interesting for me. So that's great. I'm looking forward to hearing all of that stuff. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for being on here. I think that, uh, man, you got some awesome tips that you gave in this episode. So I'm, I'm super stoked to have had you on here. And it was a pleasure to finally get to meet with you and, and chat. Thanks, Mike. I, I, I appreciate you uh, searching me out and, and having me uh, on your podcast. It's awesome. No worries, man. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk soon. So that was my interview with Brian Moncars. Was I right at the beginning of this episode or what? When I said that it would be an awesome episode. I had a lot of fun chatting with Brian. Um, he's just such a cool, chill dude, and he shared a lot of really cool stories and great advice. I really loved hearing about working with Monine because the record that he worked on is one of my favorite records, so super cool to get to hear some behind-the-scenes stuff about that. And I also found his parallel bus process to be really interesting, the fact that he uses so many different parallel buses and makes them all work together. I think that that's really, really cool and something that... I'm personally going to try on my next mix, and you should too. <laughs> That's what this is all about. That's why I make these episodes, because I think there's so many great tips that get shared. And by listening to these people and experimenting and taking action and putting trying these things out, we can all improve our mixes. So I would love to hear the results that you guys get as a result of trying some of the tips that Brian gave in this episode. So that's a wrap for this episode. And as always, guys, if this is your first time listening to the Master Your Mix podcast, make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And if you go to that page right now, I'm giving away a free copy of what I call the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. And it's going to help you get up and running really, really quickly 
And you're not gonna have to question which frequencies you should boost or cut because it's gonna clearly lay it all out for you and make things really easy for you. And also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. There's been some awesome reviews that people have been leaving and I love seeing them. So keep it coming, guys. This definitely helps to spread the word, let people know more about the Master Mix podcast and just really help get more music put out there because I really do believe that the more music you create, the bigger impact you can make, whether that's in your own career or it's helping others, all that kind of stuff. That's really the reason why I have created Master Mix and why I do this podcast. I really want to see more music come out and see people making an impact and inspiring others. So yeah, that's that's it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.